Hi, I'm lead pastor, Noel Peepgrass. Welcome to the Exeter Valley Church Podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. You're welcome to join us Sundays at 10 a.m. in our historic building at 218 Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. Last week, I cut off like one of my, my punchlines. I was going to show this slide about building on the rock, and I was going to have this picture of the rock, and then go to the next slide, Coop. And then it was going to come Jesus' face, this rock, not that rock, but I missed that slide. But last week, we did talk about building on the rock, the story, the famous story Jesus tells at the end of the Sermon on the Mount um, uh, about the wise man and the foolish man, right? The wise man built his house on the rock, and when the storms came, he was preserved. His house made it. The foolish man, uh, his, he lost his house when the storms came because he built on the sand. So uh, that, that gets you a little bit caught up with where we are today. Um, we're at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. The very end. We've been studying this sermon since October. Uh, we started October, late October, I think. We started as a church, Matthew 1, in September. And it's just, if you're new here today, like we're just, we're kind of committed to going through the Bible. Um, and uh, one of the reasons that we really like the idea of, of like the, the sermon being verse by verse out of a book of the Bible is because, you know, if we, if we break up uh, the preaching into topics, sometimes we can just miss things that we might not otherwise talk about. So that's one of the reasons we really like uh, to, to go through the book, the Bible. Um, and of course, every sermon should be biblical, right? And, and I'm not accusing anybody who does it differently of doing it the wrong way. But anyway, we've been studying the book of Matthew. Matthew has 28 chapters. Uh, we are through the seventh chapter, uh, and it's taken us eight months to do that. So you could, I don't know, like I haven't even considered how old I'll be when we get done with the book of Matthew. Um, but Jesus' words have been so good. Uh, and his life and testimony is powerful. And uh, it's just been a real joy to engage ourselves uh, in the words of Jesus. And we've just finished this section called the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthews 5, 6, and 7 are, are one of the most famous sermons uh, the world's ever known. Probably the most famous sermon the world has ever known. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because they think, or at least the story says, that Jesus went up onto the mountainside and then he gave this sermon, right? And in this sermon, uh, one of the things that the gospel writer Matthew is trying to show us is that, hey, this Jesus character... He's kind of like Moses, right? He's kind of like Moses. Moses was a leader of God's people uh, that we read about in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Um, And this Jesus, he's kind of like Moses. But one of the things we're going to find out even today about this Jesus is that he's greater than Moses. So he's like a Moses, but he's greater than Moses. So you may remember Moses went up onto a mountain. What was the name of the mountain that Moses went on? Come on, you Sunday school kids. Mount Sinai, right? Mount Sinai, that's the name of the mountain that Moses would go up to, to receive from the Lord, to be with the Lord. Um, So anyway, Jesus has his own mountain. That's why we call this the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So this is where we find ourselves today, literally the very end. The the sermon has concluded. So Coop, go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, So uh, Matthew 7, 28 through 29 uh, says this. These are no longer the words of Jesus. Jesus, if if you have a Bible, anybody have a Bible that has like the red letters when Jesus talks? 
Those are kind of cool because uh, it reminds you who's speaking. These are black letters now. Jesus is done talking. His sermon is over. And this is what Matthew has to say. He says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So the crowds were astonished. They were astonished is what it says in some translations. Uh, I'm told that the Greek word for astonished literally means dumbfounded. You know, it was just like, they were astonished at the words and the teaching of Jesus. Why were they astonished? Because of the authority with which he, he taught. <clears throat> so the question begs itself, who is this Jesus that teaches with such authority? You know, it's, it's not hard for many, whether they be secular, religious. Uh, it's not hard for many people to acknowledge the, uh, the great teaching of Jesus to acknowledge the beauty of his words, particularly in this Sermon on the Mount. You know, many claim his teachings are in fact self-evident. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's awesome. That's beautiful. That, that's true. If you're merciful, you should receive mercy. Duh. Love your enemies. Well, that's a great teaching. If we loved our enemies, then we wouldn't have war. We wouldn't have murder. That's a great teaching. No one can serve two masters. Well, that makes sense, right? Yeah, you can only serve one master because then the other one, by definition, wouldn't be your master if you had two, right? Uh, how about this one? Judge not, lest you be judged. We love that one. Don't judge me, right? Nobody likes to be judged. Uh, or, or the last one, the golden rule, as it's known. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So many claim his teachings are, in fact, they're just self-evident. Like, yeah, the teachings of Jesus, Jesus was a great teacher. Many people can agree upon that. In fact, I even read quotes this week of Hindu scholars, Muslim scholars, atheists, who all agreed that the teachings of Jesus were really great and that if you lived according to the teachings of Jesus on this, in this Sermon on the Mount, that would be a good thing. <clears throat> His critics, however, seem to say that uh, the Jesus that we can't have is the, is the Jesus that uh, makes claims of divinity, the Jesus that makes claims of uh, his exclusivity, right? That's a long word, but just think of the two gates. What did Jesus say? Choose the narrow gate, right? You've got to make a choice. You can't take the wide road. You've got to take the narrow gate. And this is where people start to have problems with Jesus, okay? But his teaching, his teachings are definitely like beautiful and it's agreed upon, right? But the Jesus of this sermon, you guys, it's the same Jesus we see in the rest of the New Testament, He's supernatural. He's divine. He's the son of God. He makes claims about eternity. He makes claims about judgment. He makes claims about the choice that we have to make. He's dogmatic, right? Which means he like holds to one version of the truth. This is true of Jesus. So these people who love his teaching from different faiths or no faith at all, they get into a bit of a bind when they come to this reality of Jesus, right? It, everyone, oh yeah, blessed are the peacemakers, right? That, I mean, we can imagine anyone in our society would agree with that today, right? No matter where you're at along the spectrum, anyone would agree with that. But this Jesus who says there's only one way and you've got to choose me, that's the Jesus that's hard for our secular world to, uh, to get their minds wrapped around because Jesus is, yeah, he's supernatural, he's divine. And he's dogmatic. So, so really, you know, 
the main question that's before us today as we come to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's not what do you think of the teachings of Jesus? I think we could all agree that these teachings of Jesus are awesome and beautiful. The main question is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And so that's the question that I want to tackle with you today. And I think it leads us to the answer and it also leads us to Palm Sunday. Okay. So I grew up in the church. I got to say, I was a nerdy church kid. You know, I grew up uh, Sunday school, flannel, flannel graphs. You know, my dad was a pastor. So I was sitting front row, you know, with my collared shirt. I couldn't wear jeans to church growing up, you know, smile back at me if you can relate to those days, you know. Um, so Anyway, uh, the reason I say that is because I, I do love holidays like Palm Sunday, you know, some of the days that get forgotten a little bit and maybe more modern church expressions. Because days like Palm Sunday, what they do for me is they connect us to a history that we share. Christians for centuries have been celebrating, they've been believing the same things that you and I believe about Jesus. You're not alone. You're not like, uh, you know, like weird um, you're not doing your own thing this morning. You are joining with the saints who, who for centuries have believed that Jesus is the King, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Son of God. And so, anyways, we're asking the question this morning, who on earth is this Jesus? Uh, I want to start by reading a poem by John Wooden. Raise your hand if you're familiar with John Wooden. Come on. I got some sports fans in here. Okay. So John Wooden, longtime basketball coach at UCLA which is the worst of the two schools in Southern California. But anyway, I digress. Uh, John Wooden is known at, universally, probably considered uh, the best college basketball coach in, in history um, and, and just maybe one of the best coaches in sports history, right? That's kind of like where he's put. I majored in, um, or I, I'm sorry, I took some um, classes in graduate school in sports psychology and coaching science. And John Wooden was quoted all the time in those classes. You know, he's looked at as a real expert in coaching world, right? So this is John Wooden's poem. He says, no written word nor spoken plea can teach our youth what they should be, nor all the books on all the shelves. It's what the teachers are themselves. And I, I thought of that poem when I came to this passage because it's not just what Jesus said, it's who Jesus was. That's important for us today. It's not just what he said, he said great things. We can all agree, right? Shake your head if you agree with me. He said some amazing things. I'm not here to tell you that the teachings of Jesus are no good. They're amazing. But it's not just what he said. It's who he was. And that's what's going to be the focus uh, of our study today. So here's the question. What gives a teacher authority? What makes it so that you'll, to use a sports phrase, run through a brick wall for that person? And I don't think that it's the expertise per se of that teacher or coach or leader. I don't necessarily think it's like the teaching itself. That's what John Wooden said. He said it wasn't the teacher, right? He said it wasn't the, I'm sorry, it wasn't the content. It wasn't what was taught. It was what the teacher was themselves, right? <clears throat> See, words without character ring hollow. And that's, the, Jesus' words are not why he has authority. Jesus being is what brought authority to his words. And that's what people were recognizing here at the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's why people are asking this question. So who is this Jesus guy? He teaches with so much more authority than the scribes and the teachers of our law. 
We've heard his teaching. Clearly, he's an expert, but who is he, you know? C.S. Lewis uh, is known for uh, something called his trilemma. I don't know if anyone's ever, if if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, um, I'm not smart enough to have read all of his books. Well, I read the children's books, the Chronicles of Narnia. I am smart enough to read those, but uh, even those are challenging. Um, But uh, C.S. Lewis was also like a great philosopher, sorry, and uh, theologian. And um, C.S. Lewis came up with this, uh, what he called his trilemma. Um, And and this is what C.S. Lewis says about this problem that we're going to address today. Um, And and so uh, here's, he, he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so this morning I come to you, this Jesus, who I've said, and we've learned because he said, we have to make a choice, right? And Jesus, he's either a liar, he's either completely crazy, or he is who he says he is, the Lord. There's no other options. So let's see who Jesus reveals himself to be. Okay, let's see who Jesus reveals himself to be. And we could have looked at the entirety of scripture. That would be an incredible study to see like the proof in scripture of Jesus' divinity, to see the proof in scripture of Jesus' messiahship. But I really wanted to focus specifically on just this sermon. Okay, so we come to the end of this sermon. We find that these people who have heard this sermon notice an authority in him. So let's take a look at just this sermon and see who does Jesus reveal himself to be in this sermon. You may notice that Jesus is like, he's like one of those people that makes you search for the full answer. You know, have you ever had teachers like that? Like I had a teacher, Dr. Winberg in college. He told us, I would never want my test to insult your intelligence. You know, I was like, dang it, insult away. It would be so much easier if you would just insult my intelligence, you know. But he always made us really work for it, you know. He never gave the obvious answer. And Jesus is like that too. You won't find a ton of instances where Jesus comes straight out and says, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God. His way was much more indirect. And I think he like is inviting us. He's inviting his listeners, his followers to search, to really come after him, you know. It's like that same idea, ask, seek, knock. Why? Not because Jesus doesn't know what you need, but he wants you to ask because there's something for us when we, when we really get after him in that way. So uh, we're going to take a look here. And again, it may not be obvious at first, but I think when we study, you're going to really see that this Jesus and the reason he had authority was because he's the king. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. So the first thing I want to say is that Jesus, uh, or the first thing I want you to notice, I should say, because hopefully you're not just hearing my words. I want you to see this in the Bible. 
right? And you can open up your Bibles to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're going to be all, all over the place. So even if that's your phone, that's cool too. I do Bible on my phone as well. So the first thing I want, to, I want us to see is that Jesus is not just a teacher. Okay, he's not just a teacher or a rabbi. He's the primary source. He's the primary source, right? So <clears throat> um, he's not just a rabbi who appeals to a higher authority. He is the rabbi of ultimate authority. He is the ultimate authority. So he spoke as one who had authority. That's the quote. The scribes of the day, the scribes of that day, they claimed no authority of their own. Maybe you've been in college or you've done research papers at any level of education where you had to cite back your authorities, right? Like you couldn't, I remember having classes like that where they're like learning that concept of like a research paper. Like you can't just state anything unless you cite your source, right? And this is how it was for the scribes and the teachers of Jesus' day. They cited their sources for everything. So the scribes, the teachers that he's being compared to, they would have been part of a tradition where they didn't have any authority on, them, uh, on their own. All their authority was built on whoever had come before them, right? And whoever they had had the opportunity um, to study under, right? So their job was not to create. Their job was not to be the source of information. Their job was to be uh, faithful to the tradition that they'd received, their only authority lay in the authorities they were constantly quoting. Does that make sense? So Jesus, you guys, he's not one of many sources. He doesn't cite sources. He is the source. So he's not just a teacher or a rabbi. He's the primary source. Um, now, I'm not a historian, but I do remember taking a history class. And one of the things that I remember from that history class is that uh, if you really want to get the best telling of history, you got to go back to a source as close as possible to the actual event, right? That, we call that firsthand information, right? You got to get firsthand information if you're going to have, you know, that's going to give you the best chance at having your story straight, okay? And the, the phrase, the, what that's called is you got it's called a primary source. If you have a primary source, you have a powerful testimony. Well, Jesus is the primary source. He doesn't cite another source. He is the primary source. Uh, in chapter 5, uh, so I told you we're going to flip around. So 5, 21 through 48, um, we were studying these as the five, uh, six commands of Jesus, right? Uh, six times in chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, but I tell you, right? You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. He puts his authority over the interpretations of the scribes and Pharisees and other rabbis. Uh, theologian A.B. Bruce says it this way. The scribes spoke by authority. Jesus spoke with authority. The scribes spoke by authority, but Jesus spoke with authority. They said, you know, you've heard it said. Jesus referenced that. You've heard it said by other rabbis, other teachers, but I tell you. He's placing his truth as the primary source of of truth. So Jesus isn't just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's the primary source. He's the point that everything is about. The next thing that we see in scripture is that Jesus is not just a prophet. He's the prophecy fulfilled. He's not just a prophet. He's the prophecy. Jesus says this, the whole Old Testament was about me. The whole Hebrew Bible was supposed to lead those people to Jesus. 
He's the point. He's not just a prophet. Yes, he, he foretold things that would later happen. He was a prophet, but he's not just a prophet. He's the prophecy. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy. In Matthew 5, 17, he said this. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He puts himself over and above the law that Moses taught. This is why he can say, uh, as he said in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Remember when we started that, it's like, you know, like, I think, you know, a lot of us want to encounter Jesus and think that maybe the first thing he would say is like, hey, I'm here and I love everybody, right? And remember how we were like, no, but that's not exactly what he said. Actually, the first thing Jesus said when he came to inaugurate his kingdom was repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus, he didn't, uh, he didn't just come to tell us about his kingdom like a teacher would. He came to inaugurate a kingdom. He came on the scene to be the king. So uh, take a look at this. This, is, this might get a little bit nerdy. Um, if you've been here long enough, Megan taught on this, like we were literally in the Plyman's backyard when Megan uh, taught about this. I know a few of you were, were here when we, when we uh, covered this, but so I'm stealing some of Megan's thunder here. But um, she, uh, there's this guy named um, uh, Peter Stoner. I know, I'm quoting a guy named Stoner in a sermon, <laughs> mistake number one. Uh, he's author of this book, Science Speaks. So, and he actually was a professor at my, uh, my college, Westmont College. That's kind of funny. Um, or uh, interesting fact, not while I was there, I'm not that old. Anyway, so evidently there's, and it depends how you count them, but um, he says there's about 324 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. So messianic meaning prophecies about the coming Messiah, about 324, okay? So there's a lot of them, okay? Um, and uh, not only are there, are there that many, Jesus, like, he's the answer to 324 or so prophecies uh, from the Old Testament. So again, depending on how you count them, don't hold me to the numbers exactly, okay? But there's a lot, right? And he's the answer to a lot of them. Like, so for example, um, his virgin birth. Jesus' virgin birth was prophesied in the Old Testament, and then it came to be. It literally happened. You can look up the scripture, okay? Um, he was born in Jerusalem. That was, uh, he was born in Bethlehem, sorry. That, <laughs> that was prophesied in the Old Testament, like hundreds of years before, it was prophesied that he'd be born in Bethlehem, and then he was born in Bethlehem. Um, he was of the lineage of David. If you remember the first uh, sermon that we had in, uh, in Matthew, chapter 1, it's a lineage. And we did a sermon on, on a list of names because it's important. The Old Testament said that Jesus would come from the line of David, and he did. He did come from the line of David. He fulfilled that prophecy. Um, anyway, even like today, uh, we celebrate Palm Sunday, which is the day uh, that we kind of remember. Uh-oh. The, the day we remember um, Jesus, uh, he, he rides into Jerusalem now on a donkey, and the people get all excited, start sh shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. They throw like palm branches down on the ground to uh, welcome him. That's not going to come across very straight in the audio track. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so anyway, I could go on. There's, there's 324 more of these messianic prophecies, okay? There's like a lot of them, okay? So I just listed a few of them. The list goes on and on. So here's what Peter Stoner says in uh, 
Science Speaks. He says, and I'm just going to quote him, let us try to visualize this chance, right? If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all of the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10, right? 10 tickets, he's got to draw one. His chance of getting the right ticket would be one in 10, okay? So that's called probability. All right, so suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros behind it. I don't even know what that number is called. 10 to the 17th power, okay? And uh, we, um, we take that number of silver dollars and we lay them on the face of Texas. So the state of Texas, imagine we cover all of Texas with silver dollars, okay? 10 to the 17th power. Uh, that's how many silver dollars we would need, okay? And that would cover the state two feet deep. So that's like this deep, all right? Now, one of those silver dollars, we're gonna mark with an X, all right? And then we're gonna stir everything thoroughly all over the state. We're gonna blindfold a man and we're gonna tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these just eight prophecies. That's if there was only eight. The numbers get too big if you go beyond that. So if there were just eight correct prophecies, and what did I tell you? 324 or so. Are you getting the probability here is like very unlikely, like incredibly unlikely for this to happen by random chance, okay? So anyway, Jesus, he's not just a prophet. He's prophecy fulfilled. He is the prophecy. He's the point of the whole Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament like I sometimes do and you get really confused about the weird stories in it, just remember this whole thing is pointing to Jesus. The whole thing is telling you that you need this Messiah and his name is Jesus. All right. <clears throat> Jesus is not just a moral expert. He's also the eternal judge. He's not just a guy who knows a lot about morals. Remember the choice that we have to make? He's a judge. He's an eternal judge. In, uh, in chapter 5, verse 18, 19, and 20, I'm going to read the, the passage. We see that he is the one determining entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So again, we're going back to this authority with which he spoke. Right? His divinity. It says this, uh, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Who is this great moral teacher who's giving people or not giving people access to eternity? This isn't just a moral expert. He's an eternal judge. Uh, a theologian named Gresham Machen says this, he claimed to legislate for the kingdom of God. He's a judge. He's not just a moral expert. He legislates. He's going to decide who's in and who's out, what's right and what's wrong. He didn't just teach about a future judgment. He claimed that he himself would be the judge. Matthew 7 now, Matthew 7, 21, 22, and 23 he says, and I'm kind of like skipping, for on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Remember when we studied this, uh, this passage just a couple weeks ago? 
So for on that day, many will say to me, what day? The judgment day, right? For on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. But then I will declare to them away from me. I never knew you. That's the act of Jesus as judge. So he's not just a moral expert. He's actually eternal judged. The accused will present their case to him, us, on judgment day. And he alone will hear their case and answer them. Our destiny will not be based on our knowledge. It won't be based on our use of his name, but on our knowledge of him personally. And remember, we, we talked about that just three weeks ago. Like, you've got to know him. It's not enough just to say his name. It's not even enough to, to do miraculous things in his name. You've got to know him. That's the ticket to eternity, knowing him personally. And he will be the final judge of our attitude towards him which determines our fate. All right. Jesus is also, he's not just a good man. He's not just a good man. He's God in human flesh. So Jesus' authority comes from his deity. This is why they were so astonished. His authority comes from his deity. They knew as he was talking, even though I told you it's veiled to us as we read until we go back and really dive in, it would not have been veiled to them. They would have noticed like, wait a minute. This Jesus, he's not citing sources. This Jesus, he's not just like, he doesn't just know the, the right thing to do. He like stands in judgment at the final day. Like they would have recognized this. This is why they were astonished. They were astonished because they realized he was acting as God. So notice a few evidences of his deity just from the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, this is just from the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, first of all, he, like I said, I think I've said already, he doesn't list any outside authorities, right? He doesn't quote a rabbi, rabbi this, rabbi that. Um, he doesn't even, he doesn't even uh, build on the authority of Old Testament scripture, okay? Um, he doesn't build on theological tradition, or he, he doesn't even quote like an uh, apocalyptic vision that he had, right? Like we see some, uh, some of that in scripture, like for example, the Apostle John, wrote Revelation after he had a dream, right? So the book of Revelation is, is an apocalyptic revelation, right? Jesus talks as if he has, like he says in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and earth. Like Jesus talked as if he actually had all authority on heaven and earth. Why does he talk like that? Because he's God. Because he's divine, right? This German uh, theologian named Julius Schneewind, that was a mouthful, Julius Schneewind, um, he says this, he says the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? The Beatitudes, Matthew 5 starts verse 3 through 12. The Beatitudes are concealed testimonies by Jesus to himself as the savior of the poor, the sorrowful, etc. In the Beatitudes, go look at them. In the Beatitudes, he bestows blessing. Who do you have to be to say, blessed are the poor in spirit? Who do you have to be to say, blessed are the merciful? You have to be the bestower of blessing. God. Only God can say those things. He also awards them, uh, among other things, the kingdom of heaven. He says, uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who can say that but God? Only God could say that. So we see his divinity in the Beatitudes. Uh, in verses 11 and 12, chapter 5, 11 and 12, he compares his persecuted disciples so the persecuted disciples of Jesus, remember, Matthew was writing this book, his gospel, to Christians who were suffering for their belief in Jesus as a Messiah. Okay, so he's writing to people who are under persecution for their faith. Okay, so Jesus compared his persecuted disciples 
to the way the prophets in the Old Testament were persecuted for speaking the words of God. So what is he saying? Like you're persecuted just like the Old Testament prophets were because my words are on the same level as God's words. Okay? You can read that, uh, Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when, when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets. That phrase, he's claiming, he's making a stake. He's staking a claim to his divinity. What Jesus is saying here is that when you are with me, you're like a prophet who spoke God's words. Because I also speak God's words. He's claiming sameness with the God of the Old Testament. In seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 26, uh, verse 26, we see that he's the divine author of Scripture. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine. Everyone who hears these words of mine. Jesus puts his words on the level of God's words. And they demand obedience. So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is making a case for his divinity. The way he's acting, the authority with which he's speaking, could only be done by someone who's the Son of God. John Stott, uh, a famous theologian and preacher, uh, English and uh, relatively modern, 1970s, he says this about Jesus' divinity in the Sermon on the Mount. He knew who would be great in God's kingdom and who least, who was blessed in God's sight and who was not, which way led to life and which to destruction. With complete self-confidence, he declared who would inherit the kingdom of heaven, who would inherit the earth, who would obtain mercy, see God and be fit to be called. I'm sorry, and be fit to be called God's children. So what he's saying is just that this Jesus who preached this sermon, he knew all these things that only God could know. Only God could know. All right. So, so here we are. We're, we're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and we've heard of this man who teaches with a divine authority. Uh, we've heard the author, Matthew, persuade us at every turn that this God-man, is, he's more than a teacher. He's more than a prophet. Matthew's been persuading us that Jesus is in fact the Son of God who came to save us from our sin and usher in a new way of being human, a new kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom not of this world but of heaven. My next question for you is, how will we respond? How do you respond to the teaching of the Son of God? How do you respond to this this judge who stands between us and eternity? Being that uh, today is Palm Sunday, uh, I figured we'd join in with the church tradition that I talked about earlier, and we take a look at Jesus' triumphant entry. I think it's one picture of how we can respond to this Jesus who spoke with such authority. This is Matthew 21. Again, we're flipping around a lot today. Matthew 21 tells the story of Jesus' triumphant entry. You could also find a nearly identical account in all four Gospels. I wonder if there's, you know, I'm just wondering out loud, processing right now. I don't know that, I, this, they're very similar accounts in these four Gospels. I found that really interesting. Um, you know, as I said a couple times, like Luke says it a little differently here, a little differently there. You know, they all have their different twists on the story of Jesus. This story is super similar across all four Gospels. Uh, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This is uh, Zechariah. Say to, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, that's Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verse 9. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked the same question we're asking today. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. See, Jesus had been about his ministry of teaching and preaching and healing. Here we are, this story, fast forward, 14 chapters. He's been doing a lot of it. And by now, people are convinced. They've heard him preach. They've heard his authority. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him stop the storms. They've seen him heal. They've seen him bring death to life. And now they are convinced this is our king. This is the Messiah. We have been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years for this man to come. And so what do they do? They do something very regal and royal, you know? And it sounds weird to us, maybe, but like palm branches were a sign and a symbol of like wealth and prosperity. They were a sign of kingship, right? And uh, it's so interesting to hear the story because even in the way that Jesus was proclaimed as king by his people, by his followers, there's still just like such a strong sense of humility in it. Like, why did he choose the donkey, not the colt? You know, like a worldly leader, a worldly political leader like we would think of, wouldn't that leader come on like a stallion, you know? But Jesus came on a donkey and it was prophesied in Zechariah that this is how it would happen. So again, here goes Jesus just being the prophecy, you know, and, and they still don't completely get it. At the end of the story, the crowds, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, you know, and this story is such a great, I think, human example of uh, like how we maybe at best can respond to Jesus, you know, like you guys, if we could just this morning worship him as king, that would be awesome. You know, and I don't know how would we greet a king in today's day and age, you know, I mean, we don't even have the same sense of like, I don't know if we could really even understand because like if Joe Biden walks in here, some of us will be mad, you know, (laughs) some of us will, I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Like we're split, but imagine, you know, the power of a king in that time. And so they're wanting to recognize Jesus as king. So these like normal people, these like peasant people are wanting to recognize Jesus as king. And so they're doing their redneck celebration, right? Palm branches, throwing their coats on the ground. And then somebody brings out the donkey, you know, for Jesus to ride on. And it, it is like a great picture of like, okay, the humility of Jesus to come riding through. The God child who was born in a manger, right? now comes at his moment of like proclamation. Like this is it. This is the inauguration. Like you've seen an inauguration, a presidential inauguration, or you've seen like a royal wedding or, you know, these ceremonies. Imagine how regal they are, right? Not Jesus' ceremony. Jesus comes riding on a donkey. Another display of his humility, you know? And then at the end of it all, you're like, well, surely everybody's got it by now, right? Everybody surely got that this is Jesus, the Messiah. And we tend to think of it that way, don't we? Like, 
if I had been around, I wouldn't have missed Jesus. Like, I would have known that Jesus was the Messiah. I wouldn't have been one of those people who said, you know, bring us Barabbas and wanted to crucify Jesus, right? But verse 11, who is this guy? Oh, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. No, it's not Jesus, the prophet. He's more than a prophet. It's Jesus, the king. That's why these people are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. That's royal language. David, the great king, the king we love, the king who we knew would bring us our savior. Hosanna, it means like to save. It's a term of uh, of praise. He saves. Hosanna, he saves. So they were saying this about Jesus. They were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Recognizing his Messiahship. Recognizing that he'd been sent by God. They were saying again, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Acknowledging the eternal significance of this man. It's awesome. But yet still some. Who's this Jesus? Oh, he's just that prophet from Nazareth. Oh, today that we would see him as our king. Not just a great teacher. Not just a moral expert. Our king. The God-man. Sent to save us from our sin. Once and for all. If we don't get that, we, we can't have Easter if we don't get right now that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the chosen one. The son of God who came to die on our behalf. So this morning, we're going to end by asking the same question I asked at the beginning. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah foretold from the beginning of time. He's come as king to, to not just tell us about his kingdom. He's come to inaugurate his kingdom. He's come as Savior to sacrifice his life on our behalf. He's come as Lord, a Lord who who won't allow us to serve two masters. Choose you this day whom you will serve. That's what he says. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose you this day whom you will worship. We get that choice today. Exeter Valley Church, choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose you this day whom you will worship. I'm taking the side of Jesus. Who's with me? Amen, right? If you're with me, stand up. We're going to sing. Uh, my wife, she's, doing, she's talking still. Can uh, someone tell her that she's supposed to come in and do the cute thing with the kids where they bring the, the palm branches? <clears throat> yeah, so we're going to stand and sing. Hey, if you're with me today and you're like, I want to proclaim Jesus as king, search your heart. Search your heart as we sing. And then a couple different ways to do it. We're going to do it with our mouths, Right? We're going to do it by coming to the table and remembering what Jesus did for us. His broken body, his poured out blood. Um, but let's, uh, let's just like take up this, hosp- this heart posture of declaring Jesus as king together this morning.